I want to ask you now to take your Bibles, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 11. Daniel, chapter 11. We've been some weeks now uh, making our way through this Old Testament prophet. Uh, we find ourselves now in the 11th chapter. We're going to be looking at verses 2 through chapter 12, verse 4. Uh, that's our text for today. Um, let's pray as we consider God's word together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself. Thank you for instructing us. So Lord, now we ask for eyes to see and ears to hear. That we might not only be hearers of the word, but Lord, that we would also be doers of it to your glory, in Christ's name, amen. History is important. Now, it might be difficult to convince some of you of that fact. Some find history extremely boring and irrele irrelevant. What can the past do? What good can the past do? But if you're one of those skeptics of history, I hope to challenge that notion in you today a bit. You see, the reason history is important is because it sets the present in perspective. History gives the present and even the future a context gives the present a context. In fact, I would say that not only does history give us perspective in the present, it also informs how we ought to live. I mean, there are things that we do today, just we generally, as humans, there are things that we do today that has been informed by the successes and even failures of those who have gone before us. And so for us to conclude that somehow history is boring and irrelevant, maybe it is boring, Maybe it's the presenter of history that you've struggled with, not the details of history. In fact, it is quite helpful, and in fact, the Bible itself is somewhat of a history book, inspired by God, certainly. Today we come to Daniel chapter 11, which spills over a bit into chapter 12, that we're going to be looking at. We're going to consider this vision in its detail, but understanding that this vision is presenting very specific details in Daniel's day of what was coming in the future. But as we look at it, looking back to what has been done in the past, as Jeremy, Pastor Jeremy, excellently noted last Sunday, Daniel chapters 12 through, or 10 through 12 are actually one unit, one vision. I'm gonna ask the sound folks to turn me down just a little bit because I'm, I'm having to restrain my voice so I'm not too loud. But just if you can just knock it down a notch so I can get louder, feel comfortable. I don't wanna blast these folks out this morning. But maybe it's loud because this is history we're gonna look at today and you need, you need more help. Stay awake. As we come to Daniel chapters 10 through 12, it's, it's one unit, it's one vision. 
Chapter 10, as Jeremy walked through last Sunday, is a lengthy introduction to the vision that we see in chapter 11. So chapter 11, that we'll be looking at primarily this morning, a little bit into chapter 12, is really the vision and its detail, what the vision is, what Daniel saw, what he was being presented. And then chapter 12 is the conclusion to the vision and really the conclusion to the entire book. So today we're going to look at primarily chapter 11, the vision itself. Jeremy introduced that to us last week. We're going to look at the details this week and then next week, God willing, we'll look at the conclusion to this vision and really the conclusion to the entire book and message of Daniel. Before we press forward though, we need to know what we're about to get into. Some of you have read ahead, which is always a good thing. It's one of the reasons I like to post the sermon text in our newsletter and other places for the coming weeks. It's, it's, it's hopefully so that you maybe read that text and be somewhat prepared and ready to hear God's word on the Lord's day. And some of you perhaps have read chapter 11. I know uh, Amy was telling me this week, she kind of skimmed it and she was like, I'm really struggling with the, with the children's sheets. You know, I'm, I'm struggling with, you know, what, where, 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 what to print off and try to help uh, with some of our, our little ones. Because when you begin to read chapter 11, your eyes probably kind of get big, right? You're like, whoa, what kind of detail are we into today? You see, the vision of chapter 11 includes a detailed account of what would take place in the coming years after the exiles from Babylon return back to Jerusalem. And the city is rebuilt, the temple is rebuilt. And Daniel chapter 11 is this vision of very specific details of what was going to happen in the years to follow. The several hundred years worth of information packed into chapter 11 right here of kings and rulers and marriage alliances and plots and twists and armies who win and armies who lose. And you begin to read this and you're thinking, what in the world does this mean? Well, Daniel probably thought the same thing because in chapter 12, verse 8, he says, I heard, but I did not understand. Maybe that's uh, hopefully not the conclusion we come to today as we now have the benefit of living with the complete revelation, Old and New Testaments. But from Daniel's standpoint, this was not necessarily history. This was history in the making. This was a prophetic vision looking forward to what would happen. However, from our vantage point, we now can look back to it as history, even though there are, there are probably some of the details here that are yet future. We'll look at that a little bit later, especially in chapter 12. The time period that unfolds is the time period that, you, the, 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 the time period that this vision is detailing is the time period from the Persian rule of 539 BC to the end of the Greek rule, around 150, 160 BC. And so what happens is if you take off reading these verses, you're not gonna get very far until you get bogged down into the details of this king and that king and this ruler and that ruler. So here's how we're going to approach this inspired text this morning. I'm gonna do my best to, at the beginning to give you a historical context of what this vision was looking forward to, now with the benefit of history, 
looking back, we can see exactly. And I'm, a lot of times I'm going to be, I'm going to be talking in past tense when this happened and that happened, although this, this vision here is referring in future tense. So we're going to get the historical context of what's going on here, and then we're going to walk through this text and see why all this matters for us in 2017. So hopefully you have a little handout that was distributed with the bulletin. You can take that handout, and I'm going to walk through a, a historical setting, if you will, on the screen with you for a moment, just so that, that you have, now I don't know, some of you are thinking, well, I can't read that. Well, just look at your paper. Those of you on the front row that can see that, I know it's fine, a little fine print, but, but this is what I just want us to understand, the historical setting of this time period that this vision is detailing, at least most of the time period. So again, we have to get the backdrop of Daniel. What happened? Daniel, the book of Daniel, is taking place in Babylonian captivity. This is during the time period which the Israelites had been taken from Jerusalem. They're living now in Babylon as exiles. So in 605 BC, that's when that time began. The Babylonians were ruling. Nebuchadnezzar goes down to Jerusalem and through several waves, he deports the Jewish people from Jerusalem and brings many of them to Babylon. Daniel was one of them. In fact, Daniel was one of the ones early on who was taken and so the setting of Daniel is the Babylonian exile that bleeds over then, even in Daniel's life, into Persian rule. So in 539 BC, the Persians take control. They defeat the Babylonians, and now the Persians are in control. We've seen that throughout the book of Daniel when, when, the, uh, when um, Cyrus comes to power and, and those other rulers come to power. In fact, the Persians are the ram of Daniel chapter eight. Remember that vision, we have a ram and a goat. So the Persians are the ram from Daniel chapter eight. And they rule until the Greek empire takes over in 331 BC. 331 BC, now the Greek empire is in control. The goats from Daniel chapter eight. And we know that in the Greek empire, during the rule, the powerful conqueror, Alexander the Great, rises to power, but he dies very young. He dies early on, about 32 years old. He's there and he's gone. Very powerful, conquers a lot, but he dies young and he leaves his empire to be divided between four of his generals. He had a couple of kids, but they, I believe, were killed. And then the empire, Alexander the Great's vast empire, is divided to four generals. Ptolemy, Seleucus, Philip, and Antigonus. Two of those, Ptolemy, ruled the south, Seleucus in the north. And there's a map there, I believe, on the screen or on your page. You can see now the, the empire of the, the yellow on the, on the screen, the yellow is the Seleucid empire. Two of Alexander the Great's generals emerge as dominant of the four. So the Seleucid empire in the north and the Ptolemaic empire in the south. And these empires wage war against each other back and forth, back and forth for a couple of hundred years. Ptolemy in the south, Seleucus in the north. And eventually, Antiochus IV emerges as one of the last, one of the remaining Seleucid kings, the empire in the north, and he continues fighting against Egypt, but he especially wreaks havoc among the Jewish people in Israel between 167 and 164 BC. How many of you are still with me? All right, just checking in, okay? 
This is important. I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't think it was important. I think it's important that you have a historical context of what's going on. I know this is not normal. It's not normal material for, for preaching, but, but I think it's going to serve us well as we walk through some of the details of this text, or else you're going to get lost in the midst of all what's going on. So, Again, Babylonians replaced by the Persians, replaced by the Greeks. Alexander the Great comes on the scene. He, he's there and he's gone. He dies. Four generals take over. Two of them emerge as dominant. The Ptolemies in the south, Egypt, the Seleucids in the north, Syria. And these two kingdoms of the north, kingdoms of the south, are fighting against each other for a period of time until Antiochus in the north, one of the Seleucid generals, comes along and he continues waging war against Egypt but he especially does harm and evil to the Jewish people in Israel. Now, chapter 11, most of chapter 11, we'll get to the end and I'll explain some of that a little bit later, is detailing the events, yet future, of all of these things. So, why would this be recorded in Holy Scripture? What is it? I mean, just think about this. For Daniel, why would this be important for, I mean, these were hundreds of years worth of information. He's gonna be long gone, he and the exiles. So what benefit was this for Daniel? And, and certainly 2,000 plus years removed. I mean, 2,500 years removed. How would this serve the people of God today and all throughout the history of the church? What is it that we can possibly learn from a detailed prophetic vision or history lesson from the Persian and Greek empires from 539 BC to 164 BC? That's really what we're looking at. What in the world, what is this, what is this telling us? Well, four things. There are four lessons I want us to take away from these, this vision, these details this morning. Four important lessons that this historical account gives us. This is a, this is a unique account. This is a prophetic vision, a looking forward now as we're looking back to see how all of the history uh, is, has been, in most cases, fulfilled, but we'll look at the future aspects of it in just a moment. Four things, four important lessons I want us to see. Number one, history has an overseer. History has an overseer. You know, sometimes we've talked about the word history. It's his story, right? This is talking about God. When you begin to read, I wanna just, I'm gonna read sections of this chapter. I'm not gonna read all of it in one setting or else your eyes will fall out of your head and your ears, you know, you'll be like, whoa, I'm lost. I'm gonna just try to take little bits and pieces and, and help us see what's going on. You feel free certainly to read the entire account and, and, and follow up on it later. Let's begin in verse two. And now I will show you the truth. This is now, I'm going to give you the vision. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dom dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up 
and go to others besides these. Just stop right there for a moment. There's a lot of years crammed into verses two through four, and it's looking forward, it's looking ahead to a time when Persia would be conquered by Greece and what would follow after. In fact, in verses three and four, you see the emergence of a mighty king, but no sooner than he arises to power, his kingdom is broken and divided towards the four winds of heaven, not to his posterior or his descendants, but to others. Now, obviously, this is a vision looking forward, but we have the vantage point of now looking back to see how history has unfolded. And what we find here is not that just these events happened, but they took place with stunning accuracy. Just think about this. I mean, down to the detail. We have right here in the first few verses of Daniel chapter 11, the prophetic vision that was perfectly fulfilled with the rise of Greece and more specifically with the rise of Alexander the Great, the mighty king. But he didn't last long. Died at age 32. His kingdom was not given to his descendants, but rather to others. We know among the four winds of heaven, the four generals that, we, that history tells us about. And two of these generals, Ptolemy in Egypt in the south and Seleucus, Syria in the north, emerge as the dominant leaders. And what you're gonna have is verses really five, or more specifically verses, well, verse five all the way down to verse 20 is just detailed account of the dynasties of the southern and the northern Greek kingdoms fighting against each other back and forth with different kings and rulers coming and going. So that's a very general summary of what's taking place there, but that's really what the vision is covering in the middle part of chapter 11. Now, two of these generals emerge dominant and they fight against each other. And we know that even from history, as we look back to the history books, they, they even attempt early on to have an, a marriage alliance. What you did back in the day is if you wanted to try to get along with some other ruler, you thought, hey, let me marry off my daughter to your son or to your king. Let's see if we can make this thing work. Well, that's exactly what, what we're told about in verse five. Look at verse five. Then king of the south, Ptolemy, Egypt, shall be strong, but one of his princes, one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years, they shall make an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south, it's Bernice, we know from history, shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall be not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. Well, we know that Bernice and Antiochus were the marriage alliance. What happened, though, was they were poisoned and killed, and it didn't last and uh, that's exactly what verses five and six are detailing, looking forward to the, to the future. Now, what's amazing when I begin to read this already in, verse, all, already in verses one through six, we, we see these prophetic predictions, this prophetic vision that Daniel's being given. This is what's going to come. And now in our day, as we look back, we can see with stunning accuracy how these prophetic visions unfolded down to the detail, down to the very ruler and kings and marriage alliances. The details of this chapter, like we've seen even in the first few verses, provide us some very important perspective. Namely, 
that God is in the details of history. I mean, friends, I don't know about you, but I mean, I've been reading the Bible for a good bit. Don't know everything there is to know about the Bible. But I just found it amazing, refreshing, stunning to, to, to some degree, just how specific we get in, these, in this vision, the details, how specific they are. And how, when you step back and say, wow, what, what is this saying? It's just reminding us that, that God not only oversees history in a general way, he is in the very details of history. I mean, if history were just a random series of events that were not controlled by God, then this vision would not be possible. This vision and the detailed fulfillment of it demonstrates that in fact, God holds sway over the course of human history. Every detail. You, know, you read back in, in Daniel chapter two, verses 20 and 21, as Daniel offers a, a prayer of praise to God. And he says of God that he changes times and seasons and he removes kings and sets up kings. When you take that truth that Daniel prays and then you come to chapter 11 and you see this unfolding of human history, what we call human history, but this detailed prophetic vision with Daniel 2 in the backdrop, what we're reminded is that, that God's the one orchestrating all of this historical detail that's going to unfold. And it did. God is sovereignly raising up kings. God sovereignly raised up Alexander the Great and in a moment he was gone. Sovereignly saw that these four generals would come to power and two of them emerged as dominant and then they were gone. And on and on we could go throughout the course of history. Friends, we, we need God's perspective on history. I mean, think about just Alexander the Great for a minute. Just think about the books about him. I don't know, I've not read many books about Alexander the Great, but I know he covers a, a good chunk of our history books there has been vast accounts written about him, doctoral dissertations written about him. People have studied this general. He's, he's even used, I'm sure, in military strategy. And he gets about three verses here. <laughs> Alexander the Great. It's as if God's saying, you get two verses, buddy. You weren't so great after all. I'm the one who's great. See, it, it helps us to have God's perspective on history. In fact, if, if you go on later and when we get to Antiochus IV, one of the latter Seleucid rulers, he, he's not well known in history, but he, he takes up a big chunk here in the scripture. It just puts in perspective, it gives us God's perspective. What, what the world, what, what people see from the world's perspective and think is great is not always so great in the eyes of God. We need to see and view history through his eyes. Kings will come and kings will go. But God is the one who's sovereign. God is the one who remains constant. And this vision and the latter fulfillment of it also ought to, rem ought to remind us and, and strengthen our confidence in God's word. I mean, would you read a vision like this and you're able now to look back through the lens of history and see just how detailed these things came to pass? This should just make, you just should step back and say, 
I can't believe how, how, how accurate this is. I mean, there, there are liberal scholars who, who argue that Daniel chapter 11 could not have been written before. It's so accurate. It's so accurate. There's no way this could have been a prophetic vision. This was written well after all of these events unfolded, they would argue. Friend, that's not so. God holds the past, the present, and the future. God is fully able. God is fully able with precise detail because he holds in, everything in his hands with precise detail to tell us what's going to happen. And when we're able to see how the Lord brings to pass this vision exactly as he describes, we're reminded that his word can be fully trusted. So history has an overseer. It's not just a random series of events. It's not just these things are just unfolding and God's just kind of sitting back and saying, whoa, look at all of this. No, he is in the details. And the fact that he's able to tell us the details, tell Daniel the details long before they happen, just remind us, these aren't random. He's over it all. Second lesson that we see. Not only does history have an overseer, but history has a pattern. In verses five through 20, we are presented with more historical details. Daniel's case, a very detailed prophetic vision that would mark the ongoing power struggle between the Seleucid dynasty of the north and the, Ptolemy, the Ptolemaic dynasty of the south. Now we're not going to read it all because it's, it's, a, it's an account where the king of the south, and by the way, when you see, look at verse five, for example, the king of the south, and then you'll see a reference later on to the king of the north. It's referring to specific kings, but it's not always the same king. It's just a, it's a, a phrase that's used to refer to the dynasty of these kingdoms. And so you'll see king and king, uh, king come after king, uh, but it's just a reference, the king of the south, the king of the north. It's not a particular king all the way through. It's referring to the dynasty of these kingdoms. So just keep that in mind as we perhaps work our way through this a bit. But, but verses five through 20 mark this ongoing power struggle later on now as the Greeks are in control after Alexander the Great has come and gone between his two generals that emerge as dominant. So verse four, let's just, let's just walk through a few of these details. Let me give you kind of a, a taste, if you will, of what's being described here. Verse four, his kingdom was to be broken and divided. We know that, that that's exactly what happened with Alexander the Great. She, verse 6b, Bernice, uh, would not hold on to the strength of her arm, but would be given over. She, didn't, she came and she was, she was gone. The marriage alliance didn't work. She died. She was poisoned. Verse 9. Let me actually begin in verse 7. And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. He shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods and their metal images, their precious vessels of silver and gold. For some years, he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. So there's some peace there for a while. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. So in verse nine, Seleucus, one of the rulers of the northern kingdoms, after a period of time, invades Egypt, but he fails, and so he returns to his land. Verse 11, another Seleucid king, perhaps Antiochus III, is attacked by forces from the south, and his massive army was defeated. You can see that in verse 11. Verse 14b, or the middle part of verse 14, we see that uh, there's this reference. Let me read verse 14. In those times, many shall arise against the king of the south. So we're talking about the Ptolemies in the south. And the violent among your own people, 
shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Apparently there were some rebels in Jerusalem that thought, hey, we could take these, these folks on too. And they attack and, and they fail. And so that's exactly what we see here. There, there's, remember, the reason I wanted you to see that map is I just want you to notice the Seleucid Empire in the north, the Ptolemaic Empire in the south, and look who's sandwiched in between. Israel. Right in the middle. Israel. Right between these two warring empires. And so this is why it becomes very relevant in Daniel chapter 11 that they understand what's going to take place because they're gonna be stuck right in the middle of it. In fact, in verse 14, some of them try to get involved, but they fail. Verse 17, another marriage alliance is attempted as Antiochus III marries off his daughter Cleopatra to Ptolemy V in an effort to gain advantage in Egypt. But guess what? Cleopatra actually likes Egypt and likes her Egyptian husband. She's like, I think this will work. And and the, the strategy fails. Documented in history, prophesied right here in Daniel chapter 11. I mean, it's amazing. You just read these verses and compare it to a history book. You can do that. Just walk through and just with amazing accuracy how this prophetic vision unfolded throughout history in this Persian Greek time period. These verses are filled with this kind of dramatic struggle for power. Wars and conflicts come and go. Plots are developed. Marriage alliances are formed. Power and wealth are flexed. And this tug of war activity between the north and the south continues on all the while Israel sits in the middle. What does this teach us? Well, it reminds us that the pattern of history is, is often scarred by the reality of human depravity and corruption. And until the end comes, the the end ends, there will be times like these when God's people are caught up in the midst of an ungodly world trying to gain power and control and influence. That's what we're reminded of, even in these passages, I mean, these were world empires. Greece, Persia, Babylon. All of them had their day, and all of them are no more. We're just reminded of how unstable the kingdoms of this world are. How unstable. I mean, just just look at the fighting back and forth, and now this this group has power, now this group has power, and it's back and forth, back and forth. And it's all motivated by this pursuit of power because of the depraved heart of man. And all kingdoms but one eventually crumble. History has testified to this time and time again. It's a reminder of where are we setting our hope? Are we setting our hope in, in the world? What we can gain? Are we setting our hope in a kingdom that will never be shaken? You know, we often use the saying of someone being caught between a rock and a hard place. I think that's where Israel found themselves in in a literal way. And even today where we often live, you know, God was in this vision, God was graciously, he was kindly giving his people awareness of what they would experience in the future during these troubled days. And part of this preparation, preparation served to remind them where their hope rested. 
Later on, we know that in this text, in, in verses 30 through 33 in particular, it's going to talk about how even some of the people of God were seduced, tricked, led astray. So they're being presented here with a dose of reality of what would take place, but implied in all of this for them was not to grow weary. As these kings came and as these kings went. Friends, we too live in a day where, where evil flexes its arm through self-serving rulers, agendas, the desire for power. And friend, we're just reminded, just even take Alexander the Great, that such power is fleeting, isn't it? It's fleeting. You may be the ruler of the known world, and in a moment you're gone. What good is it if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? There's someone in the New Testament that had something to say about that. Just thinking, all of this, it's it's a reminder to us, isn't it, that, that there is a reason for us to exist in this world. There are many reasons for us to exist in this world, but, but, but if we get caught up with the wrong things, we're no different than these kings that come and go. There's this reminder that, that yes, we're to be a good steward of what God has given us in this world. We're to do good to humanity. We're to do good to those around us. But we must guard our own hearts and watch that we're not caught up with this ambition for power and control. And be careful what you seek. The pursuit of power and influence is one that feeds our inherent selfishness. Don't put your hope in the things of this world. History has this pattern. Beware of it. But number three, history includes suffering. When you get to verse 21, verses two through 19 cover about 365 years, with verses five through 20 covering about the last 150 years of conflict between Alexander's two generals, Ptolemy and Seleucus, involving about seven kings in the Seleucid dynasty and six in the Ptolemy dynasty. They're detailed for you in verses five through 19. Then in verse 21, we have the emergence of what the text calls a contemptible person. Let's look at verse 20. Then shall arise in his place, we're talking about the um, Seleucid king that was in charge at the time. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of his kingdom, of the kingdom. Both in a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. You should come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. This is exactly how Seleucid, or yeah, how Antiochus IV comes on the scene. Antiochus IV comes on the scene not in, a, not in some powerful way, but he comes just kind of creeping in through flattery. Verse 22, armies utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. Some think that that's referring the prince of the covenant to to one of the high priests of the day. 
Verse 23, and from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and shall become strong with the small people. It's, it's a documented fact that Antiochus IV comes on the scene and he, he's quite powerful, but he doesn't have a lot of supporters initially. He slowly gains that support over time. Without warning, verse 24, he shall come into the richest parts of the province and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. That's a great phrase to underline, but only for a time. We'll come back to that in a moment. These verses again describe the rise of Antiochus IV and of course in Seleucid fashion, he continues this, this fight against the Ptolemies in the south. He's known particularly for two campaigns against Egypt, as well as his utter hatred for the covenant people of God. Verse 28 describes his return from one campaign in Egypt, and then verses 29 through 30 describe a second invasion. Let's look at that. At the time appointed, he shall return and come to the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Katim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. This is exactly what happens. Antiochus IV, he's invaded once, he's gonna go back a second time, and he goes down to invade, and he doesn't get very far before he realizes there are these ships, this, this navy, guess who it is? Rome. Rome is starting to emerge on the scene and these ships that have come from Rome, kind of in a, an alliance with Egypt, they scare him off. So he doesn't, fulfill, he doesn't carry out his invasion plans because Rome shows up with this navy and he's like, uh, I don't, I'm thinking twice about this and he hightails it back to the north. Well, he's angry, he's frustrated and he hates the people of God in Israel and so what does he do? He takes his vengeance out upon them. It's about 167 BC and we know that from 167 BC there's about three and a half year period of time where Antiochus IV just unleashes on Jerusalem and the Israelites. It's exactly what we're told, isn't it? This is what's going to happen. Think about this. This is future. Daniel's receiving this as a future warning. Notice what he does. He shall turn back, verse 30. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Let me back up. Verse 30, for ships of Katim, there's the Roman navy, shall come against him and he shall be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple. Temple's rebuilt and fortress. The city's there. He's telling about a time when Jerusalem was back in business. City was established. Temple's rebuilt but Antiochus comes and in his anger, he profanes the temple. We know exactly what he does. He ends sacrifices and offerings. He offers pig upon the altar to be sacrificed. He sets up an image of Zeus to be worshiped and he basically turns God's temple into a pagan worship center. And he kills many of the Jews. I want you to, to see this. By the way, verse 29, 
Notice it says, just this little phrase, little marker, at the appointed time. Remember the first point? History has an over, who appoints? It's God's fingerprint right there, don't you see it? At the appointed time, this will happen. It's a horrible period of time and persecution and tribulation for God's people. Forces from him shall appear, verse 31, and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who knew and know their God shall stand firm and take action. The wise among the people should make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. This text unfolds for us by the time we get to end of verse 35 what took place in 164 BC with Antiochus IV wreaking havoc in Jerusalem. At the end of verse 35 into verse 36 is where it gets a little tricky. Who is this referring to? Many, as you keep reading, and the king shall do as he wills, he shall exalt himself, magnify himself above every god, shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper to the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. On and on we go. I mean, he just, he just kind of sets himself up as God. Well, as we read this, many think that this continues the account of Antiochus IV and is kind of coming back and describing more and more detail what he did. The trouble with that is, is that all the details in verses 36 through 45, the end of the chapter, don't exactly line up with the details of what actually unfolded later on with Antiochus IV. And so it, it makes it difficult to understand who this was referring to. Some say, well, it, it is Antiochus IV. It's just dealing with details or describing in, in, in somewhat different ways. Others think it's referring to another leader, unknown, that's just worse than Antiochus IV. Others think, well, maybe this is now kind of transitioning to look at the end, and it's the spirit of the Antichrist, 1 John 2, verse 18. John says, children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Those who simply deny Jesus, but, but even worse, that those who set themselves up as God, and could be a number of people, or some would say that this is referring to a specific Antichrist, capital A, that's now shifted toward the end of time prior to the second coming of Christ. You're thinking, well, which is it? I don't know. I think there's good reason to think that it refers to someone that was worse than Antiochus IV, but I don't know who it exactly is talking about. Could be an Antichrist little a could be Antichrist big A before the second coming. Challenge is just the, it just seems to read as if these events are unfolding naturally right after Antiochus. There's not this big transition to the end. That's what makes it difficult to say for certainty that now we've jumped to the end of time. I think when you get to chapter 12, for sure that has happened. There's a little hint there at verse 35, until the time of the end, 
for it still awaits its appointed time, perhaps referring then to an antichrist in the future. But here's the point. Verses, especially verses 41 through 45, we know by the time we get to there, the end of chapter 11, verses 40 through 45, that, that's that last section, at the time of the end, there, there's, there's a hint there that we now have officially moved to the time of the end, perhaps prior to the second coming of the Messiah later, much later on. What we see there is a portrayal of a future conflict of some kind, a, 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 an amazing, a massive conflict of some kind that's described in terms of a contemporary map of that day. The time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen, with many ships. He shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out into his hand. Edom and Moab, the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow his train, but news from the east and the north shall alarm him. He shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. He shall pitch his palatal tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. And whoever this is describing, and even if it is indeed the Antichrist, the many anticipate in the future prior to the second coming, what we're reminded of is that what Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 33, in this world, you will have tribulation. In this world, you have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. In this world, you have tribulation, but verse 40, 45, yet he shall come to his end. He shall come to his end. And regardless of, of where you land on who this is referring to, there are, there are several quick lessons that we take from this. Number one, suffering, tribulation, is only for a time. It's only for a time, unless you're outside of Christ, then it's for eternity. In verse 24, back if you go back, we're told that Antiochus comes on the scene without warning, and he shall devise plans and strongholds, but only for a time. And then you get to verses 40 through 45, and we know that whoever this, this evil person that's being described here that comes on the scene, verse 45, he shall do all of this, yet he shall come to his end. Only for a time he will do this. His end is coming, his demise is sure. See, the function of this entire section is to emphasize that no matter how radically godless and evil a ruler may be, ruler of nations may be, he or she will come to his or her appointed end and none will be there to help them. And suffering is only for a time. The second truth that we see is that suffering identifies the real from the fake. Go back to verse 30. This is when the Roman ships, the Roman navy scare off Antiochus IV. He goes back to Jerusalem and he wreaks havoc. He, he unleashes his fury upon God's people and does all kinds of horrible things to them. It says, forces from him, verse 31, shall appear, profane the temple and fortress, shall take away the regular burnt offering. Everything that they had been anticipating, everything that Daniel and the exiles were longing for is now 
put to an end in a profane way. Verse 32, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And let this one verse be a great warning to us. In Antiochus' day in 2017, there are people who look like people of the covenant, who smell like people of the covenant, who walk like people of the covenant, but they are violators of the covenant. And the world just comes and seduces them with much flattery and in a moment, they show their true allegiance. But those who know their God, they stand firm. They stand firm and they take action. And suffering identifies the real form. That's why the church grows best under persecution. I know we pray a lot of times, Lord, don't bring persecution, but perhaps we should realize that in persecuted countries, that's where the church is flourishing best because it weeds out the fake real quick. Suffering can make us vulnerable. It's kind of, kind of number three, but it's similar to the second point. Again, let the mention of those seduced serve as a good warning to you. The ease by which a professing believer can be seduced and influenced ought to unsettle you. They were back in the land, the covenant restored, the temple rebuilt. They had everything that they had longed for. And now they violated the covenant. You can read Nehemiah, by the time barely Jerusalem gets rebuilt, they're violating the covenant again. It ought to unsettle us how easy it is to be such a one. When Antiochus was able to get a foothold among the people of God, let that be a warning to the church today and the threatening influence of the world. And by the way, number four, suffering is not a time to withdraw. In the midst of hardship and turmoil, the true people of God emerge and friend, there's work to be done. The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. When things get hard, it's not a time to be an ostrich. Stick your head in the sands. It's time to go to work. It's time to be heralds of the gospel. It's time to do the kingdom work that we have to do. History includes suffering, but it's only for a time. Number four, and quickly, history has an end. There's coming a day when the last history book will be written. And we have eternity before us. Look at verse one of chapter 12. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who is charge of your people. And there should be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. 
Many think that that last verse there in verse four that we're looking at this morning, that many shall, he says, seal up the words of the book, shut it up, seal it up. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Many think that what he's saying there to Daniel is put these words down. Over time, there will be more and more understanding of what I'm saying. History has an end. While the end of chapter 11 might be difficult and it seems to, it's, it's taking us certainly towards the end. By the time we get to chapter 11, it, it, it's clear, it seems, that, that the end is now in view. The end, prior to the end of time, it seems to be describing the, the events preceding the second coming. In fact, if you were to read 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16, and following for the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel. Perhaps that's describing exactly this call right here in chapter 12, Daniel, verse one. Michael is calling. So right here in Daniel chapter 12, we see a prophetic vision unfolding that describes what we call the, the resurrection at the end when Christians and non-Christians will be raised and judged. Those whose name written in the book of life will be raised to everlasting life. Those who aren't to everlasting contempt. Friend, right here, you have a summary of the gospel, don't you? Right here's the truth of the matter. The end of day, at the end of the day, at the end of time, we all will be raised again. Even if you've died, you're gonna be raised. And those whose name's written in the book, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ to be savior, Lord of their lives, who've admitted their own sin, repented of it, and turned to him in faith, written in the book. God tells us written even before the foundation of the world. Those will be raised to everlasting life. And those who aren't, those who remain in their sin and who never have trusted in Christ will be raised, but to everlasting contempt. Be separated from God forever. Friend, if you're here today and you do not know Jesus, this is, this is the future that awaits us all. Where will you go? When we were all raised, which, which, will, which will it be for you? Look to Christ and trust in him, all that he's provided. And the good news given to Daniel, news that he still didn't even understand, is that people will return to the land, but during a troubled period, and though which God's people will suffer greatly. And even as we fast forward to a time when the end is near, there will be likely even an increased time of trouble, such as never has been before. But note that that time too will be cut short and God will take us home. Couldn't help but be reminded even as we were singing together earlier, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will get me home. And I think that that was just a glimpse of what God was giving to Daniel as he looked forward to what would come. And let that be an encouragement to your own soul today, that there is much hope to be found in the God who was promised to get us home. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to you now with gratitude, knowing that it is your truth that informs